Thank you again for joining the Real Life Theology Podcast, whether it's your hundredth time listening or your first. My name is Chris. We are just excited that you've taken your time to join us today and check out our resources here at Renew.org. This is our main podcast here that we try to have to help pastors and leaders around the country and the world be equipped to help people trust and follow Jesus and have great biblically sound theology. In this episode, David Young teaches a really impactful lesson about what it looks like to be a nonconformist in today's society. As we've been walking through some teachings in this Resilience series, David does a great job describing a lot about what his new book, Resilient, Standing Firm in a Hostile World, is all about. He does a great job of talking about how to stand firm when things are really hard, kids go astray, people hate you, the world seems to be falling apart. There's something about standing firm and allowing God to do what only God can do And having a faith that is unshakable and getting to a point where it's, I'm not going to cross this line. I'll come up to it, but I'm not going any further. Making your declaration that Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what the cost is. So let's go ahead and check out this sermon by David Young. It's really good. Hopefully you get a lot out of it and it can help encourage you in your faith to help trust and follow Jesus today. Thank you guys for having me. It's a real privilege to be with you. I've been in the auditorium a lot of times for Renew and I don't know, other kinds of meetings and all, but I think this might be the first time I've been with you in a Sunday gathering. And it really is a privilege to be here. I just want to tell you that apart from my father, no one has discipled me more than uh, Bobby Harrington. About 10 years ago, I gave him a call. It's a really strange phone call, which will be fun someday to share. But ever since then, Bobby really sort of took me from a pretty small world to a the big world of what God is doing. And I, I really owe a tremendous debt to Bobby. I guess you know that about Bobby, but he's a pretty big guy. Um, and he's been a really good influence over me. In fact, uh, he's one reason why I wrote the book. He uh, tends to tell me what to do, and he told me that I needed to write the book. And uh, so I said, okay, which is kind of my style. Um, okay, whatever you say. At any rate, I'm flattered that you're going through the book. Uh, the book itself is unimportant. It's totally unimportant. But the content of the book, insofar that it reflects the Word of God, is really important. And it's really important today. Uh, we're going to talk about being a nonconformist. And what I want to do is maybe give you a challenge. I hope to inspire you to sort of, uh, you know, steal your resolve to be a nonconformist and maybe give you just a few ideas of where that matters the most here in the 21st century in North America. Uh, but I just want to say that even the idea of being a nonconformist might be a striking idea to some of you. Uh, when I grew up, I was a rule follower. I've always been a rule follower. I like rules, and they make sense to me. Uh, uh, Mom and Daddy had five kids, and, you know, I really should have made them proud because I was the one child of the five who was really intent on doing whatever the rules are. And my biggest objection to my childhood was none of the other siblings cared about the rules. And so I was like finding myself always having to correct them, you know, you need to do what you were told to do. And when I thought about nonconformity, at least when I was young, you know, so in the 70s, I would have thought of like, you know, people dropping acid, that was nonconformity. Or, you know, I had heard about, I was a little young, uh, the summer of love and nonconformity are the people who ran to Canada because they didn't want to fight in the war. So nonconformist to me, I'm not saying they're weird, but from where I stood, they were weird. And I wanted to be a conformist. 
I like prided myself in being a conformist. And I wanted to be one who just sort of really fit in and upheld the things that I thought were really great about the country and about the church and Christian faith and that sort of thing. So it's a real challenge for me to think of myself now as a nonconformist. But you know that the world of the 21st century here in the U.S., has begun to turn hostile against the Christian faith, which means that even introverted rule followers are going to have to learn how to be nonconformists in the 21st century here in the U.S., and it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy in part because it's so deeply personal. There's so much at stake. Careers are at stake. In some cases, how we raise our children, that's at stake. Our churches are at stake. There's a whole lot of pain that's involved in being a nonconformist. There's so much pressure for us to conform. Can I just give you a few words that might help you? I'm going to read out of uh, Romans chapter 12, the second verse, where Paul actually gives us sort of the commandment, not sort of, the actual commandment that we're not to be conformed to the world, that we're to live as nonconformists. Verse 2, Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The very first few words of that verse, do not conform to the pattern of this world, are going to have to be our motto going forward in North America. I've just talked even recently to individuals who are just facing struggles that You know, I have to admit that in ministry, I've got my own set of struggles, but I don't face the kind of struggles you guys face. I was talking to someone who works for a hospital. They do marketing for a hospital here in Middle Tennessee. And uh, she said, you know, we have escaped all the pressures of Pride Month, but this year, this organization has now said to you, I want you to to be pushing. I want you to lead the charge in promoting Pride Month for our organization. She came to me like, what do I do? And I'm a Christian, and I'm really trying to live faithful, and my organization does so much good, and I like my job, and they pay me really well. I think they like me. What do I do? And I had this. A state senator told me I had preached a sermon on uh, the Christian view of sexuality, and he told me, this wasn't long ago, he said, you know, there's a church uh, he found out this through one of the other legislators. There's a church in East, uh, uh, East Tennessee where they preached a very similar sermon, and they were forever booted off, banned from YouTube, just for preaching what the Bible says about sexuality. All over now, the Christian world, we're having to make those kinds of decisions. You all know that even right now, the California state legislature is on the cusp of passing a law that would make it a crime, felony child abuse, if you don't go along with your child's desire to change their gender, including castration and mastectomies. It'll be a crime to oppose it in the state of California. All of this is targeting the Christian faith, and I think at least some of us are caught by surprise by it. And if we think to ourselves that we're in a pretty conservative state, we're in an area where it's not going to happen to us, you know, all these crazy things, of course, they happen in California. If you're thinking that, you're not paying attention. 
because it really is sweeping the country and it's facing us and the pressure on our children is immense. Imagine going to a school where when you walk in, the pride flag is hanging above the entrance. It's happening now. Even in Tennessee, it's happening. Just saying, guys, when you were baptized, you know, all the times I've been in this building, it wasn't until this morning I noticed a baptistry over here. It's really cool. There were two baptisms at first service, and I'm sitting there thinking, when did they build a baptistry? I never saw that before. And honestly, I never did until I saw it this morning being used in baptism, which is really cool. But I just want to remind you, when you were baptized, let me tell you what you didn't do at your baptism. When you were baptized, you didn't enter into a negotiation with God. You didn't enter into a negotiation. Baptism is not a negotiation. You didn't enter into a dialogue with God. Baptism isn't a dialogue where you and God talk about whether or not you're going to do what he told you to do. Baptism is a confession of faith. Baptism is a profession. It's an annunciation in which you say to the world, it's an announcement. I don't know where I got annunciation, but I will say that. It was a really good word, and I plan to reuse that word. It's an announcement to the world that from this point forward, I will follow Jesus no matter what the cost. And to be a nonconformist is to say, I was baptized, and now there are things I will not do. And so I just, in fact, I want to ask you to practice that with me for a moment before I get into a little bit more of what the Bible says about this. To be a Christian in the 21st century is to learn to say these words, that I will not do. That's what a nonconformist says. Yeah, so actually, I'd like to get you to say that with me. I heard Bobby was about to say it back to me. Uh, you know, it's just really good. I, wanted, I want you to learn that principle, Bobby. This, to be able to say the words, hey, I'm telling you, seriously, you, you're going to have to learn to do this. Our HR departments are bullying us now. And by the way, I'm not blaming the HR departments. It's all coming from the top. The pressure is enormous now. The politicians are bullying us. All the social media bullies us. And by the way, if you don't agree with me, I just ask you this one question. How many of you feel comfortable posting what you really believe about biblical teaching on sexuality on any social media? Do you really feel comfortable doing it? You know what? You don't do it because you've been bullied into silence. It's in our media, entertainment. It's in our governments. It's pretty much everywhere you turn now. And we're going to have to learn these principles, some things Christians just can't do. You're going to have to learn to say, that I will not do. There's some things, you know, Jesus teaches us, uh, if you stick with the book, you'll get to this chapter. Jesus says when he sends the disciples out into a, a hostile world to do evangelism, he says, I want you to be as gentle as a dove and as wise as a snake which means that it's okay to sort of be uh, subtle when you're in a hostile environment. It's okay to sort of negotiate the edges, not of God's will, but of how you deal with people in your workplace. But there does come a time where you have to say, it is what a nonconformist says, that I will not do. Are you willing to say that with me? Even if you don't agree with it, 
At least you'll know what you're going to argue against when you leave. Will you say it with me? That I will not do. Actually, we have to sort of practice saying that. And I do want to tell you something. When you exercise that Christian authority to say the words, that I will not do, something really strange happens inside of you. You get a peace, a sense of strength, and you get an identity. Like the first time I ever did that, and I don't want to go into the details of it, but it was in junior high school, and I had the teachers pressure me to do something that I thought was wrong. I've changed my mind on it now. It was dancing. I mean, I changed my mind when I came to first service here at Harpeth Christian Church, and I saw that they were all dancing up here on the stage. I thought, well, I guess I was wrong all those years. <laughs> yeah. You, you see, you just keep influencing me, Bobby. You keep changing my life. But when I was in junior high, my church had taught me not to do it. And my own, I said, I'm not going to get into this, my own High school, junior high, was trying to tell us we we're going to do it, and they just dropped it on me one day in the middle of PE class, gym class, we called it back then. And I said, I really don't want to do it. And they started to humiliate me, the coaches did. In fact, one of the coaches was a member of my own church, and he leaned forward and he put his hands on my shoulders. He said, don't you see they're laughing at you? Don't you see how embarrassing this is? Can't you just give in this one time so that you don't have to mess up the whole class? And I'm telling you, I was probably, I don't know how old I was, 14 years old, something. And when he said that, man, I don't know where it came from. But like I was Elijah and the Holy Spirit had come upon me on Mount Carmel in front of the prophets of Baal. I steeled my shoulders back and I said, coach, I'm not going to do it now and I will never do it. By the way, he didn't know I was coming to Harpeth Christian Church, did he? I didn't know that either. And when I said those words, I'm not joking. And it's a cheap example. I mean, it's super cheap. I get that. But I am telling you, that was one of the happiest moments of my Christian life because taking a stand gave me peace, it gave me strength, and it reminded me of who I am. And man, I tell the story today because I, that it, maybe in my whole youth, my whole Christian youth, that might have been the most important moment in my life. I knew who I was from that point forward. By the way, you know what he did to me? They made me write off. I have no idea if they even do that anymore. Basically, you just go in a corner and you just write nonsense during the class. And we did it for a whole week. So he said, well, David's going to the corner to write off. Twelve more people raised their hand and said, can we go with him? Twelve more people. I learned two things that day. The first thing I learned is that when one person stands up to the bullies... It gives everybody else courage. And the second thing I learned is when you stand up for your principles, you know who you are. You finally know who you are. That's what it means to be a nonconformist. And when Paul says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, what he's saying is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the Lord God Almighty with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But there must come a time where you draw a line in the sand and you say, that. I will not do. Can I give you just a couple of ideas of where that really applies here in the 21st century in North America? The first one is when it comes to how we regard 
of the Bible. Um, some years ago, I was at a Messianic synagogue in Brazil, in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. And it's uh, like a first experience for me. It's kind of really cool, you know, to go to Belo Horizonte, Brazil, to a 600-member Messianic synagogue, a synagogue led by Jews worshiping Jesus. It's just, it's like one of those international experiences. And I was reminded of how the Jews regard the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which for them is the symbol of the whole of the Bible. At the beginning of the service, someone comes up to what they call the ark. So it's about like this. It's a cabinet. And in that are, is a scroll of the first five books of the Bible. The scrolls, by the way, are handwritten on leather. So they're super expensive. To buy one of these is super expensive. It can be several hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy that one copy of the Bible. They pull it out, and when they do, all of a sudden the congregation breaks out into singing and dancing and clapping, and I mean, it's just like a big party breaks out. And they walk that Torah up and down the aisles, and as they do, everybody, everybody tries to touch it. They just want to touch it. And you can see when they touch it, they pull their hands back and they look at their hands like we just touched something so sacred. I'm just advocating to you that you have that idea about this book, which you can now get for 12 bucks at Walmart. It is that sacred. What Paul says about the Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful for teaching or training, for correcting people, or for discovering the best points of Christian teaching. What Paul says when he says all Scripture is inspired by God, the rest of the Bible says that about itself. But the Bible's under attack in North America. It's not really the atheists who are attacking the Bible. They just dismiss it. It's progressive Christians who attack it. It's people who want to say they follow it, but they don't want to believe what it says. And so the way you'll normally hear this is some, uh, you know, really cool-looking pastor here in Middle Tennessee, you know, will scratch his goatee, maybe smoke a pipe, and he'll look at you and he'll say, obviously, it doesn't mean what it says. I'm telling you, when you hear those words, reach for your wallet because he's about to steal something from you. God knows what he means. God's capable of clearly communicating. Our problem isn't that we don't understand the Bible. Our problem is typically we just don't want to obey it. And so we pay people to come in and tell us it doesn't mean what it says so that we're relieved of the obligation of doing what it says. What I want to encourage you to do is to recognize that when you sign up for the Christian faith, you are signing a contract with God based upon the Scriptures, the written Scriptures. We get the Holy Spirit, who is not the Bible, by the way. We get Jesus Christ Himself in our lives. But the most clear point of reference for all of this is found in the written Scriptures. Which means that when you are baptized, you're signing a contract to obey this book, the Bible. And that's why the Bible itself speaks of itself as the very Word of God. 
hundred times. The Old Testament uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord. So you may not believe that the Old Testament is from God, but the Old Testament believes it's from God. And whenever you read that something is a thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament, people who disobey a thus saith the Lord are people whose end is not going to be very good. And when we get to the New Testament, what does Jesus say about the Old Testament, by the way? He says, I tell you, not one jot, not one tittle, not the least stroke of a pen will in any way disappear until everything that is written has been accomplished. And anyone who teaches others not to obey this book, they will be considered the smallest person in my kingdom. But whoever teaches and practices the words of this book will be considered great in the kingdom of God. All I'm trying to say to you is that one of the areas where you're going to want to compromise is what the Word of God actually says in a culture that tells you, I don't believe it. And so you're going to have to take your resolve. I'm standing on the Word of God, and I'm not going to back down. You know, it sounds so easy until you find yourself in a really hard position. It sounds really easy until you have a child who rebels. You know, in my experience, I have no statistics to back this up, but in my experience, the greatest calls in the church today, the greatest calls of people changing their theology on sexual holiness, the great, you know what the greatest cause is? Not affairs, not adultery. Oddly, a person commits adultery, and you know what they say? I know it's wrong, but you don't have to live with my wife. They, like they say, I know it's wrong. The greatest cause of people changing their theology is their own children grow up and abandon Christian sexual ethics. And suddenly, in order to keep their children, they change their view of what the Bible says. Man, you know who loses when you do that? Guys, I, really, I'm not trying to be critical. I had a son who left Jesus. He became an atheist, my own son. I, mean, th- I want you to think about it a moment. He went to a Christian school. Every morning, we had a devotional in our, ha- in our house. He grew up every day having a devotional. He was in one of the greatest youth ministries in the world. I mean, he had the best preacher in the world. Think about it, every Sunday. He had every opportunity to become a full believer. And he not only left the faith as a teenager, he became an atheist. And I have to tell you, you're tempted to want to bend things in order to keep him. Now, praise God, he met someone who discipled him. If you ever want a reason to believe in relational discipling, I'll hold my son up as the primary example. Two guys got hold of him, and they discipled him. My son had every resource available. Nobody in the world has had more resources than he did. But it took two men who loved him enough to spend a little bit of every day discipling. My son now, he's planning a church in Eugene, Oregon. But I want to tell you, yeah, it's a great story. I'm so proud of him. He, I'm so proud of my son. But I want to tell you, it wasn't always that way. And I was tempted to yield a lot of things because I wanted that relationship. But you know what he told me one time? I told my son, I almost hesitate to say this to you because I, I, we have parents like this, and it's so hard 
that I don't know how to say this without hurting you. I don't want to hurt anybody. These are not easy issues. But I told my kids when they were young, to both, I have two, and I told both of them, I said, I'm begging you, never, please, never make me decide between you and Jesus because I will always pick Jesus. I told them that. And my wife hated it when I said it. It just didn't resonate right with her. And my son told me not too long ago, years later, that that was one of the best things I ever told him because he said, I needed in those hard years, I needed an anchor in my life. I needed to know there was somebody who stood for what he said he believed. And he said, that was one of the big factors in bringing me back to Jesus is that you didn't fold. You didn't yield. You stood firm and you loved me anyway. I just want you to know, nonconformist has to make those tough decisions. When you yield on an adult child who abandons Jesus, they lose their last witness. They lose the only person left who can tell them a better way. Well, we're on the position of nonconformity and how you're tempted to adulterate Scripture in order to accommodate a pagan world, just don't do it. Remember, as the psalmist says, by the way, the whole 119th psalm is on the power and the beauty of the Word of God. We call it the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a psalm. It's the longest in all the Bible, and every verse of it, if you can imagine, it's an acrostic in the Hebrew language. It's actually called an abecedarian. It's an acrostic in which uh, the first nine verses are the first letter of the, start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next nine verses start with the second verse. By the way, imagine doing that in English. You know, you get to the letter X. Okay, you got to start nine sentences with the letter X. You know, X-rays, praise God, or, you know, extra praise for God. Or, but literally, that's what's going on. And that artificial structure is designed for memorization. You do it so people can memorize. So all the verses of Psalm 119 are intended to be memorized, and every one of them is about the value of the written Word of God. You signed a contract, don't back down. Stand firm and learn that there must be times that will arise in your life where you're going to have to say, that I cannot do. I will not do it. Let me give you another area where you're going to be tempted to compromise in North America, and it is in progressive Christianity, which is related to the first of these. So progressive Christianity is a Christianity that tries to accommodate the secular values of North America. And so wherever secularism goes, the dominant secular culture around us, Progressive Christianity tries to follow. If you want to know where uh, progressive Christians are going to be tomorrow, all you have to do is look at where the news is today. Because progressive Christians, they just follow whatever the latest thing is. And they constantly adapt the Christian faith to make secularists or pagans, if you will, happy. And that's why you might be surprised that progressive churches went from where they once were to where it seems that everything goes. And the reason they do that is because they look out, they see which way the wind's blowing, and then they try to conform the Christian faith to it. And I know that's a brutal way to describe it, but there is no other way to describe it. Look at the websites of all the mainline progressive denominations and just see what they themselves talk about. Look at the website 
of the United Methodist Church, not all of which are progressives, but many are. Just look at the website and see what they're talking about. Look at the website of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Just look at the website and see what they're talking about. It's politics. It's social agendas. It's sort of leftist ideology. That's what they're talking about. Look at the website of the Episcopal Church of America or the Presbyterian Church USA. And what you'll see is whatever the left is talking about, whatever seculars are talking about in the U.S., that's what these churches are talking about. Rather than talking about the things that are of focus in Scripture, you know, rather than turning back and saying, what does the Sermon on the Mount tell me I need to do? Rather than that, there's this temptation to stick the finger up and say, which way is the wind blowing today? Guys, you, that's why progressive churches are dying everywhere. I mean, just to put it crudely, if you go to a church that's saying everything that MSNBC News is saying, and I'll just say this too, if you're going to a church that's only parroting Fox News, you know what you're going to learn one day? I can do that without going to church. Because Sunday morning is prime real estate. Why give it up if all you got to do is tweet a leftist cause? It explains why progressive churches are dying everywhere. They're in a free fall. Statistically speaking, in 25 years, the Episcopal Church, the oldest church in the United States of America, in 25 years, statistically, it will no longer exist. It'll cease to exist. And yet there are many strong Bible-believing Christians who are tempted to go that way. Why would you want to go the way of a fellowship that's dying? Why not, if you're interested in something, why not look at the churches that are booming, the churches that are serious about following Jesus? They're the ones that are flourishing in America. Here's a few things where we are tempted in progressivism. One, I've mentioned already, how you view the Bible. So the Bible invites us to, to, to view it as a prescription for life, how to live. But in progressive Christianity, the Bible is looked at almost like a Hallmark greeting card. It's just a sentiment. Uh, you can take it, you can bend it, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. If you go to a church, when you start to see that, when you're reading authors or listening to podcasts where they're really twisting the Word of God to make it sound compatible with 21st century American progressivism, you're listening to poison. I'll give you just a few others, and I'm going to call it. You'll hear in progressive Christianity a whole lot about social action. And by the way, Christians ought to be involved in social action. I've been involved in the pro-life movement since I was 20-something. But I just want to remind you, when you read Jesus' work, it's almost all about personal sin and salvation. That is, you really can't pave a road with a bunch of crooked sticks. You can't make a just world with a bunch of unjust people. And that Jesus came to save individuals and thereby to change the world. But if you skip the part about sin and salvation, you won't get the change you're looking for. You'll hear in progressive churches a downplay of the justice of God. So the progressive author Brian McLaren once made the remark that hell is false advertising. 
that if God actually created a hell, then God's not a loving God anymore. What he's trying to say, by the way, most people who downplay justice, the justice of God, most of them are white, upper-class, privileged Americans who never were mistreated. They don't have any injustice in their lives, so they can't have any conception of what it's like to be mistreated all of your life. I want you to know the justice of God, it is good news. Go to a suffering population, to a population that has been abused or mistreated. Go back to the Jim Crow South, to 1936, south of Georgia, and ask them if the justice of God is good news, and they'll tell you absolutely it's good news because they're so fed up with injustice. To say that God is not a just God is to say we have a judge who doesn't care about what's right. And I remind you, Jesus mentioned hell more than anybody else in all the Bible. And so Brian McLaren was, in essence, saying, I'm more spiritual than Jesus was. Progressive Christianity is going to be one of the areas you guys are most tempted. And I just want to remind you, learn to be a nonconformist. Learn to say that I will not do. Yeah. You're going to face hard times. I don't know that we can even project where it's going to come from next, or what the next text is going to be. But what God most desperately wants is a people, of, a people of his who are faithful to him. That's who he blesses. And I just remind you that the Roman Empire at one point, appeared that it was going to last forever. The city of Rome stood, can you imagine this? The city of Rome stood for 800 years. And Christians looked at Caesar or Christ as their only choices for the first 300 years of the Christian faith. And one could have rightly guessed, or one could have guessed, I should say, at any point in those first 300 years of our history, that Rome may actually win. But if you ever visit Rome today, you know there's the new city of Rome, but you go down to the Forum, the area of the Colosseum, and you realize it's in the dustbin of history. Only two things survived the Roman Empire. You know what they are? The synagogue and the church. Nations rise and nations fall, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. We will kick down the doors of hell. And so what God's looking for is a people who are committed to being nonconformists. Let me pray for you. Lord, these are tough times, times that for many Americans we have been caught off guard with. We didn't see it coming. Maybe we should have. And it's, I think it's called us off guard. And so I pray, Father, for clarity. And I pray that you help us to see clearly what it is that you want us to do. Give us a lot of grace for a lost world. But also, Father, give us a sense of resolve. Uh, the resolve that we expressed in our baptism 
and help us to stand firm. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So guys, what God's looking for, the people who are willing to draw a line in the sand and are willing to say, I will go this far and I will not cross that line. So here I stand. So help me, God. If you want to make that kind of prayer, if you want a prayer for strength, why don't, why don't you stand up? Let's stand up. If you want a prayer for strength, like I know there are parents here who are struggling with adult children who have left the faith or have compromised. I just want to speak all kinds of compassion. I was there every day. I got up to preach. By the way, my son still came to church. I would get up to preach, and I would see him standing in the back like this. And he never opened his mouth. He never sang. He just looked. Had the most flat look on his face. And I would pray, dear God, do something. Do something. My heart goes out to you. But we're just going to take a time if you want to pray to God. Don't give up. God's not giving up. But also don't compromise. Let's be a people who know where we stand and with all kinds of grace, here we stand and we're not going to back down. Thanks for joining us again on our podcast today. We hope that this message encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. I want to go ahead and let everybody know that not next week, but the week after, we're going to be starting a really cool series on gender and male and female roles in the church. Bobby and Renee Sproles, who just wrote the book Male and Female, which is available at the Amazon link below in this podcast, are going to walk through in a six-part series some of the main biblical teachings on gender, how we should view male and female roles in the church and in the family in today's day and age where everything is a little bit up in the air and there's a lot of debate around this topic. They bring really sound, good biblical teaching in six parts. And so go ahead and make sure to be joining with us. Make sure when that starts to be checking us out, listening, because I think it's really great content that you can take and use with your churches and your staffs, things like that, to be really on the same page about what does the Bible say about gender issues and how do we apply those today. So make sure to check that out and we'll see you next week.